Welcome to the Best of MBS podcast, a collection of the best interviews hosted by Michael Bungay-Stanier, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Today's interview is from the Find Your Great Work interview series. Here's your host, MBS. My guest today is Phil Zimbardo, Professor Phil Zimbardo, and he has been a Stanford University professor since 1968. And I will tell you this, that um, basically... Phil started getting distinguished teaching awards in 1965. So it gives you a sense of how long he has been an influential, thoughtful, provocative, powerful university professor and probably how many lives he has touched uh, along the way. And I come to know of him through his, uh, his terrific and deeply disturbing book called The Lucifer Effect. And the uh, subtitle of The Lucifer Effect and... You know, I don't actually have it in front of me, but it's, it's something along the lines of why good people do bad things. And it is a very powerful look at something that, uh, an uh, uh, experiment that he conducted called the Stanford University Prison Experiment, where basically he took good, wholesome, pleasant, middle-class uh, students and set them up in a, in a prison environment, some as guards, some as prisoners, to see what influence that system would have on their behaviors. And uh, suffice to say that the experiment had to be cut short, such was the, I guess, deterioration of behavior into prisoner behavior and abusive guard behavior. And this is sort of powerful and disturbing, not only just in terms of how we think of our own lives and how our own behavior is influenced by the systems around us, but also plays out in terms of where we see uh, systemic abuse playing out in, in our prisons and in our military prisons and the like. So I was very drawn to this book because I think it's a, a, a challenging book, um, but also drawn to the fact that as a result of having done this work, uh, Phil has been the founder of something called The Hero Project, and I'm looking forward to talking to him about what it takes to be an ordinary hero, because in that, you have a way of managing and self-managing around systemic pressure that might push you to behaving in a way that is ultimately abusive and not about living up to your, your fullest potential. So it's going to be a fantastic conversation. And Phil, welcome to the conversation. Um, happy to be here, Michael, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, what, what, what did I miss? I mean, what would you add so that people have a sense of uh, who you are and the work that you've done? Well, um, <clears throat> I grew up in uh, the South Bronx in New York City, which is in a city ghetto, uh, was, is, hopefully won't always be. And if you grow up poor in an inner city, you're surrounded by evil, meaning good kids are seduced into doing bad things for gangs, for drug dealers, uh, to make money, to prostitute yourself, and so forth. And as a kid, I always wondered why my friends who I knew were good kids ended up doing really bad things. And when I got to be a psychologist, I was able to transform that general curiosity into research. And the research, um, uh, which I, I did some before I did the Stanford Prison Study, really focused on how do we understand the process by which an ordinary person who otherwise has led all their life um, with, uh, with goodness, with a moral conscience, can suddenly begin to do really bad things, even become perpetrators of evil. Right. And so the Stanford Prison Study essentially pit, pitted 
good people against an evil situation, the evil situation being a prison-like environment modeled after American prisons. Yeah. Uh, and the idea was if you, if you fill a prison with all good people, good guards, good prisoners, shouldn't that triumph over the evil of the place? And the sad conclusion, not only of that experiment, but of many others that I summarize in, in two whole chapters in The Looser Effect, uh, is that situations have enormous power over us, much more so than we'd like to acknowledge or that we realize. And the first step in resisting those negative influences is to be aware of how vulnerable we all are. We, we carry around what I call an illusion of invulnerability. You say, yes, them, but not me. Uh, and once you do that, then paradoxically you become more vulnerable, more set up for influence professionals. There are people out there whose job it is to get you to do bad things. I mean, drug dealers, um, you know, gun runners, uh, cult leaders, uh, cigarette smoking advertisers, etc. Yeah. So. So essentially what, what I'm trying to do now in my new program is to say, you know, heroes are the flip side of villains. That is, heroes are ordinary people who uh, decide to act on behalf of others in need or in defense of a moral cause, aware that there is a potential risk or cost. And they do it without expectation of a reward. And what's new about my basic idea, which is a fairly simple one, is that most heroes are ordinary people. Right. Uh, we confound that idea with the fact with superheroes that our kids emulate, with uh, sports heroes and celebrity heroes that are really not heroes. They're just people who are in the news very often. So right. heroes act on behalf of others. So heroes transform the private virtue of compassion into what I consider the highest civic virtue of heroic action on behalf of others or defending a moral cause. It strikes me that there are, there are almost two phases around doing this. One is, first, of having the sense of um, awareness and self-management that you can resist undue influence. You can resist the pressures of a system that might push you down behavior that is you know, evil rather than good. But then there's also the active choice to act in a heroic way rather than in a, in a neutral or passive way. I mean, Barbara Colorosa has a great book called The, what is it, the Bully, the Bullied, and the Bystander. And she right. includes absolutely. that bystander as being a critical part of the system. Um, oh, absolutely, Michael. Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, you know, what I present is that there are two kinds of evil. There's the obvious evil of action, people who do bad things. I mean, who are, you know, the villains, the, the killers, the, the drug dealers, yeah. the guards at Auschwitz, etc. cetera, uh, the, the terrible people, uh, the, the Hutus who slaughtered their neighbors, the Tutsis in Rwanda. But for every one of those, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of people who are guilty of what I call the evil of inaction, of passive indifference. See, the problem is almost all of our mothers say, don't get involved, mind your own business. And if you do that, you pass on your coward gene to the next generation. Um, but indifference, when uh, when action is called for, is, is an evil. And so really, so this is the kind of thing which... Uh, uh, which uh, any study of bullying reveals is that for every bully and for every child bullied, or now bullying is in the workplace, there are dozens of people in the classroom who know what's happening and look the other way. And so, so they allow 
evil to persist. So in my Stanford prison study, for every bad guard there was, there was a good guard on the same shift, but the good guard did nothing to ever intervene, intervene with the bad guard. Never said, hey, you know, knock it off. Or, you know, we're getting the same money whether we, whether we abuse the prisoners or we, we leave them alone. Right. Um, but they never did that. And so the good guards allow the evil of the bad prison uh, to be perpetrated. Let, let me ask you, because uh, I want to talk more about how do you move from inaction and bystander to action. But before we get there, or maybe it's a related question, how do you how do you resist the influence of the system to start off with? I mean, how do you stop becoming a bad guard? And I know that I've seen some parts you've yeah. written about some you know, some possible behaviors or ways of thinking that can help you self manage to resist some of that influence. Yeah, it's um, you really have to understand, you know, what are the tactics that these influence agents use? Yeah. I mean, they are professionals, okay? Now, so what, what I've done is I've developed um, a heroic imagination project in San Francisco. We have a dozen people working with me, mostly volunteers, young people, older people. And we have a new website, which I'd love to have your listeners uh, visit. It's called, it's www.heroic.com imagination.org and what we do is one of our programs is education we have another which we're doing original research on heroism we're trying to promote heroism in corporations and then public engagement but but the education part is exactly what you're saying we begin by asking people to take a hero pledge to sign up to take our hero challenge it's a four lesson course and lesson one is be aware of the power of the situation on you and and the way we teach is uh, by presenting about 50 or 60 video clips from the Stanford prison experiment from the famous uh, experiment on obedience to authority by Milgram yeah. but also funny ones from candid camera and for each of these I have a little a little introductory vignette saying hey notice here uh, uh, about diffusion of responsibility. Notice what happens when people feel anonymous. Notice right. now the pressure of the group. And so so what we do is we try to make it interesting and cool, you know, not heavy-handed, but to yeah. say here are the tactics and strategies that can be used against you, the power of the group, diffusion of responsibility, uh, getting you to de dehumanize others, and, and we do it in a way which we think is memorable, is learnable. And we're, we're actually putting this into practice in a number of schools in San Francisco uh, and also in uh, Flint, Michigan. Uh, Matt Langdon is uh, working with us. He has, he has a program called Hero Construction Project. So we, we try this stuff out in schools. We're working with high school students and middle schools. And when we know any of these work, then we put it on the line. We put it out for the world for free. Um, the second uh, session is be aware of your your vulnerability. We'd like to think that we are different than others. Right. But when we tell you that the majority of people in this research did the bad thing, you have to use that as the base rate to predict what you would do. It's, it's so true, you know. I was just thinking of the um, one of the you mentioned the the candid camera videos a little bit a while yeah. ago, and I just remember a flashback to seeing one as a kid where people walk into an elevator, and all the people yeah. are facing the back wall rather than looking at the doors, which is what most people do in an elevator. And this person right. is completely bemused, and then ends up looking at the back wall because of that whole pressure. 
And part of me laughs yep. at that, and part of me goes, I wonder if that's yep. what I would do as well, because, you know, who am I kidding? See, I'm influenced by it, that group, that power to conform to the group. See, I mean, uh, Candid Cam- Alan Funt, the brilliant creator of Candid Camera, became a friend of mine because, you know, I told him that <clears throat> that while he's entertaining, he's also educating, that he was an, what I call an intuitive social psychologist. Right. And what he does in, in skits like, like uh, Face the Rear, right. he makes it apparent how ordinary people can be trapped in an unusual situation. So here are strangers that we now conform. They face the rear, and there's no, there's no, there's no sign in the elevator saying you must face the front. Right. It's just... That's the implicit norm. That's what we do. But now when everybody's facing the rear, most people get into the elevator and now face the rear. Um, but these are strangers. So what, what, what you should step back and say, hey, what is the impact of people I care about? And this is a momentary thing going up in the elevator. So what about my friends in my class? You know, what about the people who work with me? What about the pressure that my family puts on me to be what what going to be? So, so then our program goes to the next step inspiring you to do the heroic things with examples right. and then and then we actually give so th- then we say look to be a hero you have to be socio-centric meaning focused on the other so we're going to have exercises say every day this week your job is to make one person feel special one way to do it give a compliment right. it has to be justified start with your mother's start with the bus driver uh, the person who serves you food in, in, in the cafeteria, uh, the person in the laundry, just give a compliment that, that shows that you are paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. So if you focus on others every day, you're the one who's going to be likely to notice that somebody is in need and then more likely to act. The other thing is, you see, a hero is always deviance because the majority of people in every situation do nothing. Uh, so this, this famous um, New York City subway hero, Wesley Autry, last year, he's on a subway station in New York City, actually at City College, 138th Street, and uh, a person falls across the tracks. There are 75 people on the station. They all freeze. They do nothing. He's got a reason not to. He's got his two little daughters with him. Instead, he turns them over to strangers, jumps on the tracks, gets this guy who is lying across the tracks to put him between the tracks, presses him down just as the, the subway train comes over, his, over over the two of them. He survived barely by a half an inch. And what he said was, you know, I did what anyone could do, namely jump down, but I did what everyone ought to do. Right. So here is, here is the moral imperative. The other thing I should mention is Wesley Autry happened to be a 50-year-old, middle-aged, African-American man. And the guy he's going to save is a white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so a- again, the point is anyone can be a hero, it, be, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless even of age, mm-hmm. that when the opportunity ar- arises, what we're trying to do with the Heroic Imagination Project is, if you have internalized this conception, I, I am a hero in training, and when the opportunity comes, Lovely. I will be more likely to take action. And you know what? I love what you've just said about the act of a hero is fundamentally the act of a, a deviant because one of the people we've interviewed as part of this series is uh, Jerry Sternan. And he, he's unfortunately deceased now, but he was the founder of the Positive Deviance in, uh, Initiative. And it works in a similar way. Well, I don't way. know that. 
Yeah. Well, I don't know that. Tell, no, tell me about that. Well, the positive, That's very important. The Positive Deviance um, Initiative basically works at large-scale social innovation. And it basically says the seeds of change are actually within the people who, in a, in a situation faced with the same resources as everybody else, they figure out a different way that they get to thrive rather than struggle. And Jerry Sternan's work was initially with malnutrition in, in Vietnam, um, but they've done it in all sorts of other important places like health in hospitals and uh, female genital mutilation in various countries as well. And it works on a similar piece, which is find the people who are behaving in a way that is a positive deviant behavior and find a way of normalizing and sharing that behavior so it becomes something that everybody goes, I can do that. That's an action that I can do on an, ordin an ordinary, everyday level. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Oh, th thank you so much. Um, yeah, I have to find, I did know about, I should know about it because one of our projects is Dare to Be Different. Mm -hmm. So, see, the problem is, you know, if you use the Wesley Autry example as a more typical one where yeah. you're part of a large group, there's an emergency, most people do nothing. That means the majority defines the situation as do nothing. Right. Well, so you have to resist that. But there is a pull of the majority not to stand out, not to be different. So one exercise is, for example, put a black dot on your forehead for one day. Right. And when people say, why are you doing this? I just feel like it. People will get crazed. I mean, your family, your friends, your <laughs> major work. And you say, no, no, I just feel like it. What difference does it make? It's still the same me, but I have a black dot on my forehead. And what happens is if you can resist one day, not taking it off, you realize that the pressure people put on you to be what they want you to be. And suddenly you realize your, your taste in music, the way you dress, the way you, your, your hairstyle, yeah. so much yeah. about us is what we're doing, what other people want us to do. So to be a he hero, you have to be a positive deviant. You have to be able to resist the enormous pressure that people put on you, in, in some, sometimes for the better. I mean, your parents want you to eat good food. They want you not to smoke, not to take drugs, whatever. Right. But on the other hand, you know, some parents are prejudiced. You know, some friends of yours are bullies. Uh, some friends of yours get into gangs so that how do you learn the kind of self-confidence and really it's a kind of build up for moral courage to be able to resist the power of the group to get you to do what they want you to do when you know what you what you should be doing is is uh the mor morally uh, sure. correct uh, sure. response you know it's it's an interesting tension that you're pointing to phil because on the one hand it's like how do i resist the greater anonymous majority that will default to do nothing that may default to behaviors that are all about conforming in a in a non important way but then you're also i think part of what you're saying is you also to to resist influence you also need not to be isolated you actually need to stay connected to people who you think are good arbiters of the right behavior the right way of showing up the right ma the morals and values that you want to embody so it's both oh absolutely being oh you, you hit it being very influenced at the same time no you hit it exactly on the head michael that's really brilliant because you know we, we don't make it alone. And see, one of the notions I have is th the traditional view of heroes is really the solitary male warrior. That, that's a traditional view. That comes from Joseph Campbell. Or everything we know is most heroes are effective 
in a network. Uh, Gandhi, uh, that's Gandhi's message. Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, the Christians who helped Jews during the Holocaust, of course, only were effective if they had a network. They had to move Jews, especially children, from place to place. So, so, so part of my notion is I want to democratize the concept of hero. Anybody could be a hero. You don't need special talents. And diffuse the notion away from the solitary hero to the network. Because if you're a solitary hero, you know what? The system offs you. The system says you're a fanatic. Uh, you're way out. You're weird. But once you have at least two or three people who share your view, then it becomes an ideology. It becomes a, the start of a social movement. Uh, so it, it's critical to both be able to resist the conformity and power of the group and at the same time to be able to create your own uh, heroic network. And we've just witnessed one of the most remarkable things in the 20th century in Cairo right. where we had a leaderless revolution. Exactly. You know, not by the yeah. not by the minority party, not by the opposition. This is ordinary people, especially young people, saying, you know, this government is wrong for us, and we must oppose it, and we are willing to die for it, and some did. Uh, and finally, they persuaded the government, you know, the government to step down. It's a little bit like uh, the Czech Revolution, the Velvet Revolution from some decades ago, uh, which was, again, it was leaderless. Vaclav Havel uh, uh, emerged as the leader, but he was a playwright in jail. Right, exactly. and, and, you know, he's, he's, he's getting people to say Soviet communism was is wrong for Czechoslovakia. And finally, he convinced the, 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 the Czech government that he was right. And they said, all right, we'll step down. You take over. He said, he said I don't want to take over. I'm a poet. Said, oh, so, so, but ne- nevertheless, he got elected to be president. And so that was a revolution again without a single shot being fired. And there it was the will of the people, you know, and there was what I would call collective heroism. Uh, and we see now the, the impact in, in Cairo is now spreading throughout the Middle East where there are all of these repressive regimes, which sadly, you know, the American government has supported because anybody who was against communism was our friend, uh, even though they were dictators. Um, but so, so again, I, I think the last thing I, you know, I want to say is, you know, my message has been we have to be more aware of the power of situational forces. But what's critical is to say who creates and maintains those situations. It's the system. And systems so so systems are where the is where the power is. It the cultural, economic, uh, legal, um, historical. But when you really want to change people, it's not enough to have a treatment model, educate, give them therapy. You have to change the situation. But you can't begin to change a situation unless you become aware of the power of those systems. Because when they work really well, like the mafia, they are not transparent. They, they are concealed. They are hidden. They are front groups. Yeah. Um, so but I, I think this is, for me, this is the lesson is that, you know, understanding human behavior, we have to know what people bring into a situation. We have to know their personality, their background, their tra- character, mm-hmm. the, their culture. But we have to know what is the situation in which they are operating be it Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo Bay or yeah. or Cairo uh, Square uh, or the Stanford Prison Jail. But then we have to step back and say, and can we figure out what is the system that keeps this thing going? You know, it's, it reminds me of uh, Edgar Schein's work on organizational culture. And he says, look, there are three levels to understand an organizational culture. There's the artifacts, what you see. 
There's the espoused values, what they talk about is important, and then there's the unspoken assumptions, which are the systemic forces that truly drive and influence behavior. And what you need to understand to influence a culture is those those unspoken assumptions, because otherwise you're just rearranging, you know, deck chairs on the Titanic. You're not getting to the heart of why the issue may be. Knowing the system is actually where the levers of change actually lie. Yeah, exactly. And, and especially in, in, in uh, corporate cultures where there's a lot of turnover, <clears throat> new people coming in don't know the unstated assumptions, the unstated values. Uh, and, and so that, that's where you run into, into uh, various kinds of conflict. So this, has been, this has been a fantastic conversation, as I, as I knew it would be. And I think that I, I love the Lucifer book, even though it kind of deeply disturbed me as well. And, um, oh, yeah. And I think uh, the importance of understanding how significant the system is on our behavior and our, and our, if you like, moral imperative to go, I need to be clear about the choices I'm making and the influence of the system on that and to build the support and insight I need to make the right choices regardless of the pressures of the system is so critical. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's clear that, you know, we have to change our self-concept of, you know, I, you know, I'm going to go it alone. Right. I mean, you know, the, the Frank Sinatra song, you know, you know, my way is just, it's the wrong way. <laughs> you know, it's really, it should always be our way. So that, yeah. that it's, you know, uh, that be aware of when the situation system is pushing you in the wrong direction. Yeah. And aware that the power to, that you, ha- you, each of us has the power to change that, not individually, but we have the power to organize others to share our belief, uh, and uh, and that's and that's what we're seeing now around the world. Uh, this really positive deviance, if you will, positive change. Phil, you, we mentioned your book, The Lucifer Effect, but would you give people again the uh, website for the the Hero Project? Oh yeah, please visit. It's www period, heroic, H-E-R-O-I-C, imagination, continuous, uh, I-M-A-G-I-N-A-T-I-O-N, dot org, heroicimagination.org. And we have lots of interesting information there uh, and also ways ways to uh, contact us uh, if you want uh, specific uh, feedback. Phil, brilliant conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this Best of MBS interview. Want more great content? Head to mbs.works. There you'll find MBS's new podcast, Two Pages. You can learn about his best-selling books, and you can join the newsletter. That's mbs.works.